The Incomparable. Number 350. April 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable, talking more television. So many good TV shows that have been on lately, and I want to get to them all. Uh, for this portion of the program, I want to talk about The Magicians, which just featured uh, finished season two on the Sci-Fi Channel. Joining me to talk about The Magicians, Glenn Fleischman. Hello. Magic. Suddenly I'm here. He's our Dun- Doug Hi. Hennig. And uh, also warming up the magic wand, Moises Chuyan. Pregnant! Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Why, there's a rabbit here. Um, Okay, so before we talk about season two of The Magicians, we should start by talking about where the show comes from and why people might be interested in watching it if they haven't seen it yet before we fire off the spoiler horn and get into the details of season two. It's based on Lev Grossman's series of books. We did cover one of those books in in an old episode that I think Moises was just uh, sampling not too long ago. it, it, it's in fact, called episode number 86. Yes, oh, it's called yes. Like Catcher in the Rye, except crappier, which does, in fact, refer to the magicians. Some people didn't like it so much. I, I liked it, and I, I liked the sequel like even more. Um, but it's about... It, the, the, the high concept is, is a bunch of uh, college students, and it's sort of what if Harry Potter was set at a college and everybody was taking drugs and having sex. That's basically where the magician starts, but there's so much more than that in terms of there's a Narnia analog called Fillory, uh, which is, uh, is important to uh, the perception of magic by a couple of the main characters and becomes increasingly important as the story goes along. And, uh, and, and yeah, it's a, it's, I think an enjoyable series of books. Um, have you guys read the books? Glenn, you've read at least a couple of them. Well, yeah, I read uh, The Magicians for that episode. I read it and I really hated it because it was such a, I mean, that's the thing. It was such a, um, not just an anti-hero, but uh, Quentin was so unlikable. I was really angry about it. And Jason, do you recall, we tweeted something about it and somebody in 2010 or whatever, to because people like to make trouble, brought it to Lev Grossman's attention. Yeah. He was like, thanks, guys. I'm like, oh, we weren't tweeting at you. We yeah. have an opinion about, ah. Uh. But here's the thing. I uh, So years pass, I went and picked up, I was in a library, and I see The Magician's Land sitting there on a recommended shelf. And I'm like, you know, I know it's book three. I gave book one a chance. I'm like, but people seemed, I don't know. I pick it up. I start flipping through it. I'm like, this seems much better. And I absorbed it. I'm like, oh, my God, this redeems book one. I went and read book two, which is more problematic but much better. And I feel like the series, if you give up in book one, it's kind of like a long book, right? And so Quentin is very unlikable. And he doesn't become super likable, but he does have a – he has a path – a yeah. lot of other people's paths are emphasized more in the later books and they're more appealing. And the whole picture is so much, it's like a much richer tapestry, which I know people say, but I don't think I've ever read a trilogy that's been redeemed so much by the end that it made me reevaluate, like I retconned in my head book one. So I've actually reread Magician's Land. I think I've read it three times. Wow. I've only read Magician's once and the second book I think I've read twice now. I haven't read the books. My experience with the series is that I read, I watched the first season knowing that it was a book, mm-hmm. uh, having been one of those horrible, incomparable listeners who listens to a book club episode, having not read either of the books. <laughs> um, just because so horrible. It, it, we love our listeners. Uh, yeah, I the the thing for me was I knew that I wanted to watch this series and see how the series was going and I wasn't going to put off watching the show 
to read the book first. I, I am not that type of adaptation purist. Uh, what I did do after the end of the first season was go through all of the narrative outline summary of the entire series because I'm curious about the inner workings adaptation of things uh, as a creative writer myself. And I found most fascinating that one of the things that worked best for me in the first season of the show is that even though in the book and in the show, Quentin is very much set forth as the protagonist, the chosen one, the one to shine light in the darkness, that that sort of archetypal uh, male hero of virtue. He ends up becoming a supporting cast member in an ensemble piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Rather quickly. And, and that's, that's much more the case with the show than the books where the book, um, the, the key difference is that one of our, I, I guess you would say sub leads of the show, Julia really comes much more to the fore in the second book. She, and yeah. what they did in the first season of the show was interleave her storyline and his storyline. And Jason, if you want to give us the, the narrative setup of, of just the, the, the basics of, of who's where and who's what and, and how that kind of stuff goes, uh, you are more authoritative to, to do such a thing than I am. But for me, that is one of the things that in adaptation, I think served the show radically, radically better than just do it like the book. You didn't do it like the book. You screwed it up. You should have done it just like the book. The rule, the law of the land is you must always do it like the book. I am against that law. A lot of these extended adaptations, um, I think, succeed when they view their source material as raw material and know that although telling a novel story in a uh, you know in an extended season of a of a TV series is a better form than trying to tell it in a movie right because they've got more time to get into a lot of the detail it's still not the same medium and you still need to make adjust- adjustments also sometimes the fact is it's like taking a a second draft realizing where the series goes even the original novelist may have decided to do things differently, knowing the arc of their entire series instead of just book one. And The Magicians is a great example of, of taking Julia. The, the premise is that, is that Quentin and Julia are friends, and he gets into Break Bills, the magic school, and she doesn't. And she has she basically goes away. And we see Quentin's life and learns magic and gets into trouble and all those things. Book two and the very end of book one, we discover Julia and we, and and book two tells this interleaved story of Julia with these other characters in the present. And also all the things that happened to lead her to finding a different path to learning magic. And, that's great, but if you're going to do the TV show, what do you do? You take that, you take all that story and you put it in season one so you can tell yeah. the stories of Julia and Quentin in parallel. I am pretty sure that Lev Grossman, when he started working on book two, was kicking himself because he probably realized very early on that it would have been great to tell those stories interleaved. I'm sure he mentioned it to the producers of the TV series when, when they had a conversation about it because it's so obvious if you read the books that that, that would be a better way to probably tell the story and it and the show really benefits from from having the 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 basically like the they're almost the co-leads although you're absolutely right Moises. this becomes an ensemble to the point where it almost feels like quentin in the tv series is it's a setup that like oh yes he's like harry potter and then very quickly you realize nope this is not what you expect at all he's not the chosen one it's part of an ensemble it's not the show you're looking at and season two even furthers that more about about what you thought was on the side of the box is totally not what you get inside it, it, you start out with the assumption that it's horny potter slash narnia 
Yeah. And it ends up being much more about these, uh, you know, for me, metaphorically, it worked in the, the the recent generations that have gone through advanced systems of learning and in college as undergrads and as grad students get out into the real world and they they realize, oh, the real world is all completely broken and we've just kind of been set apart, set out here with our magnificent skills and our our learnings from from uh, wonderful institutions of of great knowledge and are kind of out to fend for ourselves. And and for me, that's how it works as an ensemble uh, comedo drama thing uh-huh. uh, where where th- there are those kinds of allusions to the kinds of uh, allegory that you get in high fantasy and acknowledge nods to the pop culture that's there. And, and it's something that, that becomes even more pronounced in season two with some really specific niche references to things, you know, some just off, um, you know, one off uh, one liner uh, bits that are thrown about. Um, but the, the thing for me that, that made me glad that the team that adapted this thing for TV did it the way that they did it is spoiling myself on all kinds of things, some of which they have massively diverged from, some they have turned very far away from, and I don't know how they would, you know, re-correct course to do it just like the book or resolve certain things just like the book, is that they found they found ways to flesh out all of the principal characters' stories and, in fact, created a whole new character that added more women to the cast, uh, which is a rarity. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that for a second because I think that's um, we all alluded to this a bit, but it's uh, it seems like it's a hero's journey, and it is a hero's journey. But the book, right? I mean, the book like bifurcates, right? As the the books go along, book one, Jason, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, I think in retrospect, it was probably a mistake to focus on a really unlikable character who is sort yeah. of a failure, right? And so you, the book, you know, book one is very glum, um, and there's no, there's not a lot of joy in it, and he's kind of a jerk, right? But, um, so the overall arc works from better, but in the TV series, Moises, I think this comes up as well in what you were saying is that, uh, it's a hero's journey, and we all assume it's Quentin, but then, no, Julie is there too, and she is having a hero's journey too. It's a different kind, right? She's the one, the, not the prodigal son, but she's the exile. He's the one who's sort of seen Seems to be like he's the chosen one. He's the one everyone spoke of. She's pushed aside. She makes her own hero's journey. Then you get Katie to a much lesser extent. And even in season two, she has a journey. Uh, uh, a Penny, who is kind of a throwaway character in the books in a lot of ways, I'd say. Like he's kind of a stock character. Yeah, he's a, he's a foil. He's a Draco Malfoy. He's he's very yeah. blatantly a Draco Malfoy type of foil. But he gets he gets his hero's journey. Then you have various yeah. characters. So I feel like this is a symphony of heroes journeys, none of them told necessarily stereotypically, and none of them resolving in the way that you'd expect in kind of a Campbellian arc kind of thing. It's like, it's all weaving and people keep screwing up. And it's, um, but usually you have that, even an ensemble piece, everyone's not going through a journey. Some people are along for the ride and they get character, you know, turns and so forth. Everyone's got their own story here, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the, another character that, that you didn't mention that, that, uh, I'll, because we've kind of done just about the round of most of the principal cast, uh, Alice Quinn shows up and she kind of comes off as the, uh, the human embodiment of a One Direction song. Like, you don't know you're beautiful. Oh, 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 you don't know you're beautiful. Uh, kind of a dreamy, doe-eyed girl. She, she's a manic depressive pixie girl. She's a magic pixie dream girl. Magic dream. That's, yeah. that's where uh, let's go with that. <laughs> Um, and, and (laughs) when we get past the spoiler horn, there are other things that I'll have to say about her, but in the show, 
there is more dimension to her than just the archetype that's on yeah. her, though I've still yeah. got some lingering issues with her. And then we've got we've got the dual pairing of uh, Elliot and Margot. Margot oh, was my God. Janet in the book, right. uh, who in season one feel, again, not not as fleshed out as we get either of them in season two, yeah, wonderfully yeah. so, I might say. Yes. Um, but they they kind of are the cool upperclassmen who like to party and have orgies and do a lot of drugs and and you know they're they're the they're the cool kid who rides in the back of the bus when you you know start riding the bus in elementary school and you're like wow i want to be like that fifth grader they're that cool fifth grader but you know adults and they do drugs and and do all kinds of uh, of of uh, serious bacchanalia and then bad behavior yeah. And, yeah they're they put the horny in horny potter it's not I mean, I think without, again, getting into the spoilers, because this is really the part where we're just trying to say it's an interesting show. You might want to might want to watch yeah. it is they have a, a fascinating character journey that really you could argue all these characters have, which is I know it's hokey to say that this is about growing up, but it's totally about growing up. It's about <laughs> it's about people who are doing things that are adult things when they're not entirely adults. And then yeah, and then wh- they become adults because they have to deal with the fallout of the things that they did. Um, and that's dealing with the fallout of your, of your decisions is what being an adult is all about. And, and you, you see it having those, those breakfast club style labels put on you and they're put on you for a reason. And there are things about each of these people that earns them that label. I guess you would say it's not something that, that is like reverse engineering from a label to a character. Um, and, and it was something that concerned me early on. And this is something that I had mentioned to Jason in, in DMs early on in the run of the first season was, oh, God, is this really just going to be this archetypal and just, right, oh, right. shock value. Oh, anti-gravity sex. Oh, drugs. Oh, more drugs. Oh. Yeah, if you look at the season one and the season two posters, they do have a little bit of the, hey, this is all your it's magic sex. There you go. Mm-hmm. But it's it's looking at those labels and how trying to self-define yourself as as something um, can can end up painting you into a corner that life throws you a series of curveballs and you have to find a way into who you are going to be. Uh, and in particular, I, I love that where I, I was worried with really the entire principal cast that they were going to fall into these established archetypes. Even um, even uh, Professor Fogg, uh, played by Rick Worthy, the uh, Charles Xavier, uh, <laughs> Albus Dumbledore, the the mentor, higher learning type uh, character. He's he veers off from that. And and we get we get the kinds of things that you only get, you know, decades into the existence of a character like Charles Xavier, where they have. Mm-hmm. Something of a shady past, some questionable decisions they've made in the past, uh, some things that 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 people have to deal with. They are not this kind of, you know, like Yoda being that is just nothing but a perfect, a perfectly formed mentor. Like a sexless, perfect source of oracular wisdom. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, when the show started, I mean, when I started watching season one, I was interested enough and I continued, but I thought it was going to be, you know, sexy times magic school because, hey, this is college. Everyone's 18, so we can display sex stuff where we can't do that in Harry Potter, uh, or you have to only vaguely imply it. Um, and we have hired actors who are like in their, obviously in their twenties. So it doesn't look yeah. quite as grody, right? Everybody's in grad school. They're, they're not even undergrads. And hmm. everyone's dressed like all the women are dressed in weird. I mean, they, but they wish they'd, st- I, first season, my whole reaction first season, would you stop putting Alice in clothing that doesn't fit her? It's not sexy. It just literally, <laughs> 
I would show my wife. I'm like, this just, this is not, doesn't fit her. But, um, but I feel like they, they fell out of it. They, they broke out of that by season two. But, but I also think that, um, you know, I, I think this took, this got us into more interesting territory much faster than the books. And I give it to, I mean, Lev Grossman is involved in this project, uh, deeply. He's not the screen or he didn't write the, uh, screenplays right but he's no he's not he's not as involved as as the expanse writers are he's sort of at a distance here it's it's mostly sarah gamble and john mcnamara who are running okay well i think they've done a great job adapting the source material and there's some stuff i want to talk about after the spoiler horn hits that i think is brilliant in terms of the relationship of this to the i mean really brilliant that lets them get away with a lot uh but but i feel like this the way they approach this it's um it's more appealing. We see the stakes really early and the stakes are not, oh, I should point this out too. I think like in the books, it takes a long time before the stakes get high, right? The stakes are very personal. And for this distant fantasy land in the series, I think they bring the stakes um, faster and broader, more closely so that we have more, not world destroying, but just like it's a bigger effect. The world uh, magic is a very limited thing and kind of secret uh, largely in the book world. And in this world, it's just kind of a little broader thing in relieved too but but i but i agree i just think they i think the characters are i think they developed arcs early enough for them that i had the same fear you did moises but i think they um they broke out of it fast enough that we started seeing the glimmers i i don't know if i should talk about this after the spoilers but like i have issues with the direction more than the writing of the show let's say but um but that's uh that's a different matter This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Audible. If you love books but find you never have time to read them, maybe you need to get books into a different part of your life. Audible gets you audiobooks, and you can listen to them anywhere you want on the go on pretty much any smartphone or other MP3 player that exists in the world. You own your books. You can access them anytime and anywhere right from your phone. They have a great listen guarantee. So if you decide you start listening to a book and you're just not feeling it, you can exchange it for another title anytime. No questions asked. Uh, a book that I really enjoyed lately that you can get on Audible, Michelle Baker's book, Borderline, which was nominated for the Nebula Award. It's kind of fairy noir. It's really good. And if you're listening to this episode about the magicians, I highly recommend it for you. I did a lot of travel recently and you're sitting, maybe it's a commute, maybe it's a long airplane flight or you're sitting in an airport for a long time or waiting to change planes. This is time where maybe you're not feeling like you want to read a book, but you can listen. You can listen sitting on a plane. You can listen in the airport. You can listen on the bus or on the train. These are all great places to listen to Audible. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of your time. Turn your travel into something more with the free trial at Audible, audible.com slash Snell to start now. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring The Incomparable. The the only other pre-spoiler horn thing that, that I would throw in is uh, people have different feelings about trigger warnings. Uh, I think especially because uh, an instance of sexual assault is something that the network chose to use in in pre-episode recaps during season yeah. two, that people should be aware that sexual assault is something that you... Uh, that you see in the show and it is a cable show, but it's not a like showtime cable show. But at the same time, regardless of the explicit or uh, unclothed nature of something, uh, that is something that you should be aware of and prepared for as being, um, as being a, a prominent part of, uh, of, of the narrative, uh, going forward. Um, aside from that, uh, stuff that we'll discuss after the spoiler horn and how the show deals with that. 
I I st- still even at the end of season two, I was I was a bit more uncertain about than I was at the beginning of season two. Um, but I find it is um, more nuanced than I think. Again, people worried that it it would be handled. Um, mm-hmm. And then relating to the books, the initial central antagonist referred to as the Beast, who we learn so much more about, and there is a lot of texture to. Um, the the one thing that people trumpeted uh, as most directly ripped from the book is the first appearance of this character. And it is terrifying and raises those stakes, like yeah. Jason yes. said. And for me, that is what had me hooked and on board for all of season one and ready to take the ride for wherever they were going with it. Because I know that especially a cable show like this, there's so much less money for literally everybody involved than there is a network (laughs) show. I wanted to give it the chance to get all the way through that first season and hopefully get a second season renewal and get to workshop itself and take its own notes on itself. And I feel like I can confidently say that if you've maybe just dipped your toe into a little bit of season one, that it it carries my recommendation to watch all of that and all of season two as well. Yeah, I was going to say it's pretty rare for me to say this. I can't think of another show where I could say this. And I know, you know, when you review a show, if if you only seen the first episode or the first couple of episodes, you you, you have to pay play a lot of uh, place a lot of faith in progression. And a lot, most shows are what they are, and they don't get that much better. Um, I'd say The Magician season one, every episode is better than the one that preceded it. Maybe you know yeah. episode one and two are you know swapped, but but it gets a lot better as it goes, which I think it's finding its feet and it's and it's. Also, I think intentionally starting with the stereotypes and then diverging. And so when you talk about character arcs, I mean, that really is evident in this show. And then the second season is better than the first season by a lot, I would say, and yes. better and gets better and accelerates as it goes into the end of the season. And um, so I, I I agree. And it has been picked up for a third season. So I, I agree. This is one of those things that you may want to stick with it, but I do love their choice of taking a chilling scene from the the first novel and making sure that it lands at the end of episode one of season one so that you get the stakes up front by the beast appearing and doing horrible things. I want to bring up something about that too is that again like you know there's a you have to compare it to Harry Potter because a lot and they even I forget if they talk they mention Harry Potter in the books or in the in the series but it's like you have to compare it but the so the but the th- the thing is I think Harry Potter it's meant for a younger audience and there's things that are horrifying uh, in the books and um, also in the movies I think the movies have more impact in some ways because the books are they're not more anodyne but I think they're stretched out a different way but I think the magicians has stuff that is truly like existentially terrifying and I think they captured that I would say in the books there's times that I was you know audibly gasp or be really shocked by things um, in a like in a good way, right? The way it was presented. It's like, this is a shocking thing. And the context is here for me to find it truly shocking. I think they did an even better job on the screen of that, where you're like, this is, this is just messed up or like incredibly moving. There were times when I just, there's a scene I will mention. We get to the spoilers in a, one of the episodes in uh, season two towards the end where I gasped and started sobbing when the thing happened on screen and I'm like, how many pieces, I, I mean, this is, this is not like the best produced thing, made thing of all time, but they really did capture those moments really well about, um, 
not just interpersonal relationships, but what like the sort of the definition of our parts of ourselves and so forth. We'll talk more about it after the spoiler, though. All right. Well, suffice to say, we think that the show is worth a look and and worth sticking with because it, it gets better and there's a lot of stuff in it. It is. Thank you for the content warning, Mo- Moises. Yes, one of the characters there. There is a. a at least one sexual assault. Uh, not one. Yeah, you're right. There, yeah, <laughs> more than one. It, it yeah. is. It is. It is a. It is a. It, it is not just a thing that happens to a person. It is. It is a part of the tapestry of the yeah. show. And in fact, you yeah. could say that a lot of the 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 tapestry of the show is about a, is about power imbalances. Um, really, I, I I could probably write an essay about that. That that there are gods and people, and magic is a place where humans interface with gods, and that is not good because of the massive power imbalance. There's a thing in the Wikipedia page, uh, not to quote Wikipedia directly, but I was I saw it and I went, "This is a great observation. Magic is goddamn difficult in the magician's world, right? In the universe, everything is complicated. It's more explained more in the book, but even in the show, they're always doing all this fiddly crap, and they're like, we have to do this. You got to do this. If you don't do this right, everyone dies, right? And in the Harry Potter universe, it's not that magic is easy, but usually you escalate up to tasks or you master something and it's good. Um, I think Lev Grossman wanted to capture this arbitrary, capricious nature of something that was almost prettified as magic yeah. and show how it's just as ugly as everything else in the world to get it to work the way you want. And it always has unintended consequences. Yeah, it's ugly. It's dangerous. It can be broken. It can be fixed. It can be empowered. It can be... Uh, radically uh, reduced in power. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no like you. You become uh, fully formed as Voltron, and you're unstoppable <laughs> with with this stuff. There is yeah. always something that can screw it up. There's something that can throw everything off. There are forces at play that you're not even aware of that uh, that can sometimes uh, come across as oh oh well that's what that was okay well that that seems like a you know a simple explanation but then. You realize that that itself isn't just a a a, a simple um, a, a simple a simple author uh, author playing god kind of a thing. It's part of a multi tiered system of the author playing gods, uh, and continuing to find different ways to to break it. And the collective mm-hmm. author being the entire writers' room and the showrunners. <laughs> um, and that that's I one of one of the one of the things I wonder about shows is the different atmosphere, different writers' rooms. And this is one that in particular I, I I would have loved to be a fly on the wall of the season one writer's room and especially the season two writer's room because it seemed like, especially with season two, they moved into, okay, how many ways can we break things in ways that if we, you know, let people survive or, uh, you know, heal or spin out of something, it doesn't come off as a cheap save. Uh, you know, how how do we how do we make what hurts hurt and count and not just take something completely off the board and, and make it a continual, gradual growing experience for these characters? Mm hmm. This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients can make a huge difference. It's important to know where your food comes from. For less than $10 a meal, you'll know exactly where your food comes from. It comes from a box from Blue Apron. Delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. Right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and there's a freshness guarantee, so you will be sure every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook and if not they will make it right that happened to me one time in more than a year using the service and it couldn't have been better they took care of it if i had a problem it's no wonder blue aprons the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country 
I enjoy it. I've been, like I said, uh, using it for more than a year. It's really added variety to our meals. We get to cook the meals ourselves, which is a lot of fun. And we get to save the recipes and reuse them later if they're a favorite recipe, which has happened. We've got a big thick stack of Blue Apron recipe cards now for ingredients that we've, we basically put a big star on them and said, yes, I like this. Make this again later. Some of the meals available in the month of April included sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli. That's the kind of meal you can expect with seasonal ingredients from Blue Apron. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash snell. You'll love how good it feels and tastes and smells, quite frankly, to create these incredible meals at home with Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash snell. Blue Apron a better way to cook. All right, let's fire off the spoiler horn. We'll see you on the other side with spoilers for season two of The Magicians. Should we should we should we do a, a lightning uh, recap of season one, not in even even outline form, but just in general, like. Uh, I, I I guess where where we start off season two with well I mean so season one is about learning that the that Narnia is real <laughs> which is called Fillory and <laughs> Narnia is real uh, one of the Pavenzi kids decided to stay in Narnia and drink from a magic well to become a super powerful monster yeah a nice twist yeah. the big bad is actually one of the kids from the books right I like to think of him as as Edmund from the Narnia books yeah turns out there are there are gods some of them have been. Uh, have been hiding and uh, Julia and her gang managed to bring one in and it turns out not to be the god they thought but a trickster god who commits horrible atrocities but we uh, we know there are other gods too because of Fillory exactly right because the and in Fillory there's the uh, there's Ember and Umber and what Umber's gone but Ember's still there and uh, right. there there are two sides of the Mr. Tumnus coin yeah exactly Ember is a pain in the ass and we hate him he's just incredibly he's annoying filthy and he's terrible and I love him yeah he's just terrible and uh He's in hiding. In the end, what they do is they uh, they conspire to uh, to kill the beast, but uh, then Julia, who they've they've hooked back up with, um, actually cuts a deal with the beast to ke- kill the trickster god who killed all of her members of her her sect where she learned magic and sexually assaulted her. And they leave, and uh, Quentin is left standing there. Uh, among the bodies question mark of his fellow uh, students um uh, great cliffhanger uh, moises you and i talked about it when it came back that yeah. the problem with doing this cliffhanger and it, the expanse of the magicians both did this where they took they adapted a book and sort of didn't get to the end for their season ending cliffhanger and so they kind of created false cliffhangers and this is a good example of that where it's yeah. literally scene one of episode one of season two uh is Oh, I guess they're okay. <laughs> Everyone's dead. Oh, wait, no, they're, no, they're all fine. Alive. Yeah, we, they they cut off Penny's hands, which oh. in the book series happens later. Yes, and, and he never gets them back. He never gets them back. He's he he pops back up later on, but he he doesn't have nearly as consequential a role in the narrative as he continues to throughout season two. And everybody else is is basically knocked out, and who knows who survived and who died. But they're all fu- in the end. It's mag- there's magic and it's fine. Well, Alice is right. Alice was given the uh, essence of Ember, and so she was still at godlike powers to let them. Uh, <laughs> you you mentioned them- the essence, the the essence of Ember, yes. and one of my sticking points is that apparently in the world of the magicians, the TV show, uh, the the semen of a god uh, gives you extra powers, and that's something that that bugged me 
just bothered me uh, because it also resulted in uh, Julia, when she was sexually assaulted by a different god, getting additional powers as a result of mm-hmm. having been sexually assaulted. Although and, I think there's a resolution pending because in the books, I think there's um, – the, the, the books are about – I think at some level it's an arc about male magic and uh, and male fear and that the the beast is really an embodiment of someone who um, – he was – well, he was – and he's molested. Oh, I have to bring this up. In the book, one of the reasons I hated book one so much is the fact that – the beast was molested by the author of the books that were extracted from right. his children about Fillory. I was so pissed off at Lev Grossman for saying, well, you know, he was diddled by so-and-so. And you're like, oh, but and I felt therefore like, he is an evil, sinister no, villain. And the whole thing is built up so much, oh, so much better in the show. In the, but also the later books, I think, go back and they revise that. They make it, they weave it in more. So that, that abuse and pain becomes something more real. But book one is like male abuse. Right? And then book two is even more. And it turns into this melding of like, not female magic, but the women grow in power as the books progress and the role of women and women gods is certain level progresses too. the way i the way i got past this this stuff mentally was to say i feel like they're trying to play the greek and roman mythology card here which is if you look at 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 ancient mythology um this is what the gods did right the gods treated humans as their playthings and zeus would go around and have sex with pretty much anything um and 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 i think they're trying to get that across here but you're right i think the show does it way better than the books do this is a case where revising it and rethinking it uh makes that but you're right i mean this is the gods and gods and people i I, yeah i I would i would love for them to have by the end of season two at least alluded to the fact that okay maybe male god spunk uh does that but there is something more powerful uh from the female side of things uh it just yeah. feels so feels so lopsided where we are in the in the TV show's narrative as it stands well i think we're going to get it you know to jump not really ahead but like when our lady of the underground appears and she sort of um you know she's been missing she takes renard her son which we didn't it's not in the books under her wing and she does acknowledge julia's pain but i don't think she does a good job of it but it stated Julia was allowed to state her pain and what she needed. The goddess told her this is, you know, there are consequences if you do this, which which we see the repercussions, right? That's what the end of the season is about. Um, if you take this revenge and Julia is given this chance to not take revenge, but she's taken it away from Katie, who wasn't raped, but saw, you know, all of her friends killed and has gone through this this journey. But I, I he forced think her to commit murder. He, uh, yeah, know. I mean, she had to kill his son, like his son, whole thing. But I think there's uh, I think there's a I don't want to say there's a redemption coming because I don't know. But I feel like this is building up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the white lady, even like it's a white stag in the books. I think there's a white lady also, but you know, in episode four, they bring in the white lady as the magic creature. Um, I think, I think there's something going on there. And Julia's ascendance, like all of these things are going to happen, but I think we're not getting enough of it yet. So I feel, I, I, I agree with, I agree with both of you. I think Jason's right that it's, it's pulling off this, you know, we are, but, uh, flies in the hands of wanton boys kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they they kill us at their will at their sport as sport. Um, but by the way, yeah, uh, I should say that the uh, it's it's I'm sure people out there are thinking it's rich for the uh, for the three dudes on a podcast to be talking about huh. this. We did actually uh, we're trying to get Serenity here because uh, she has has seen them all too and she couldn't make it. So we I I, I it's unfortunate 
because I do I think there are lots of questions about uh, the this aspect of the show and how the women are treated. Moises and I kept going back and forth about those promos or those previously ons where they kept showing the assault and it's like make oh it stop. They, they, it was they isolated Jesus. specifically the actual physical act of the sexual yeah, yeah. assault. Like every every single second of it. Uh, well, and she keeps cats. flashing back to it. She keeps flashing back to it. And there's an argument to be made that the trauma she's right. reliving it, so we're reliving it with her, but not like seven times in the show. Like, yeah, we, like we three get times it. in the show. And uh, I, I, th- I think it's I think it is possible to depict that on screen. You know, a, a note that was made earlier was about issues with the direction rather the uh, rather than the writing. I think mm-hmm. by you, Glenn, and and I think that's one of the instances of it where you can evoke that that is that that her PTSD is being triggered, but you don't have to show us the audience the same awful moment playing again and again, and and you you start to think, do you think this is something the audience is enjoying seeing? Because we are not. Do not do this to us. Us. And 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 I don't I don't think that any of us could be classified as quote unquote dumb enough to go oh yeah that's right she was raped. right forgot. we forgot that had huge no idea plot point didn't stick at all it's a shortcut to the presentation of better horrible things they show that are richer and more integrated and make more sense in like character development they're using this as a shortcut like we've already shot this we're going to show it again I want to talk about a few other things that happen in this second season because there's I mean there's a lot here a lot happens um, in the end they they kill well they find out that Umber is not dead but is living in Vancouver which is like <laughs> Death um, lives in Vancouver, just like the show after the pilot. Exactly right. I did. Ooh, they're going to Vancouver. It's very exciting. I think it's the house from Arrival that Amy Adams lived in. I'm not sure, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's the house that Baltar lives in in the Battlestar Galactica uh, reboot <laughs> uh, miniseries. Yeah. But they kill they kill the beast early on though. They kill the so they kill the beast early. Yet. They kill they they, fi- they bring Umber back to Ember, and and both of them die. So there's a lot of gu- and of course they do kill Renard or they try to kill Reynard and then Renard's mom shows up. It's very Star Trek and takes takes him away. Um, that so that all happens. Uh, there's there's a lot going on here. Uh, Penny gets a job at the library. It's very exciting working at the library. Yeah. The library is very fun. Uh, there, there is uh, uh, we th- we. Have, there's an abortion because Julia gets pregnant in the sexual assault. Oh Jesus, that was terrifying when the doctor kills kills herself over the while well, yeah. trying to commit the abortion. It turns like, out I every mean, everybody tries to steer her away from it, to, but she keeps forcing the issue to the point where the doctor is basically killing herself rather than uh, aborting the child. But they she ends up basically at this at the loss of her soul gets rid of this demigod that she's growing inside her and uh so th- there's a whole story there because we meet it turns out that there there was another woman who had a child with uh with uh, with reynard and he has grown up to be a senator because he has god <laughs> she, powers that that woman has a hacks and packs in right <laughs> there's too much to some meanwhile you know of course they've all been made kings and queens of fillery and i wanted to mention because we were talking about uh, Elliot and Margot and their character progression that this is the thing that struck me in the last couple of episodes when I watched them I watched actually the last three all in a row together it was great great ending yeah. Um, yeah. those characters have come so far they are fully realized characters they still have lots of issues but like Elliot who starts out as a joke by the end 
is such a great, noble, like, and talk about growing up. He's like, he's still the same guy, but he's trying to live up to his responsibilities and, and navigate difficult and situations. And find a way to be happy. And find a way to be happy. And Margot, similarly, she, her control freakiness leads her down some very difficult paths. But at the same time, it's such a rich portrayal. And you get the sense that she's making lots of difficult decisions, but she's trying to make them for the right reasons and get the right outcome, even though she makes mistakes. And this is a real testimony to how good this show is, that it took its two most ancillary characters and mm-hmm. gave them maybe the best story arcs in the entire show. Again, ju- jumping back to, to season one, one of the things, for, the, the glimmer that we got of Elliot in season one, where he had to kill the guy that it looked like he finally found that was going to be a good fit for him. Yeah. Um, that that was the glimmer of hope that they were going to do a bit more with Elliot than just a sad, tragic gay man who could never be happy. Um, that we we got we got more than just perfunctory plot beats out of it. There there was there was there was a there was there was the beginning of the character arc there, and I was worried that again this is one of my season one worries at the end of season one was oh so I guess it's just going to kind of end with that, and season two. If anything, he is a more prominent male sub lead character than Quentin is yeah. for me mm-hmm. throughout the the overall arc of the whole thing. He's the one that's got the arc. Um, he is the once and future king, as it were. Yeah. Um, and 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 Margot really, I I love that knowing Summer Bishel as the girl from Towelhead and crossing over, you know, uh, immigrant experience uh, types of of uh, of message movies. Her getting to be the Regina George queen bitch of the universe and have more to her than just cattiness and one-liners. Yes. The cattiness is there. Yes. The one-liners are there, but you get, you get a really fully realized human being underneath all of that, uh, throughout the, the arc of season two where, yeah, she, she makes some terrible choices and arguably makes some of the kind of, uh, impossible no win scenario kinds mm-hmm. of choices that are almost always relegated to male characters because male characters have to determine the arc of a narrative. She does a lot of King Solomon she gets kind to do of stuff. So yeah. much yeah. of that. I, yeah. yeah, I want to bring up a thing. You, this is a perfect segue into the directing issue I have, which is in season one, I wasn't sure how good these actors were. I hadn't seen many of them in anything else. In season two, I discovered these actors were are being badly directed. I would maintain, maybe I'm putting out too much there, but whenever they're given a chance to move outside of some very tightly defined character stereo, you know, characteristics, they are so much better. And Margot is a notable example. Whenever she's forced to be in one modality where it's, it, but it's like, I mean, the librarian is the best example. The head librarian is a pain. I do not like the characterization. I don't think what she's doing makes sense. And I'm absolutely secure that she's being told to do that. And, but, and, you know, Mayakovsky is not so good in season one. He's fine. He is much better in season two and is a bigger character than in the books. Yeah. Um, I, Quint- I love, I love Brian F. O'Byrne. He's a phenomenal Irish actor. Oh, I just- kind of wish they had just cast a Russian. Well, it's true. Uh, I mean, his accent is terrible. But, but, so, but I feel like, you know, I, I've never directed something like this, but I feel like when I see a lot of one note performances from people where it's like, Quentin, what you do is run your hands through your hair and your, Anguish. No, no, that's not anguish enough. More. Uh, you know, Alice. Hold on. Let me, you, let me find a clip of Kristen Stewart on YouTube real quick. Right, hold on. Uh, Alice, you need to look pained and shy and uncomfortable all the time, no matter what scene is going on. And it's not the, you know, so it's not the actors. And I feel like 
if you watch season one, so people who are you know hearing the spoilers, if you watch season one, you're like, this is a little wooden. Like I like the plot. I think they've actually shot it really well. Like the mise en scene, I think is great. Yeah. Special effects are mixed, but pretty good. They did an incredible job with whatever budget they have. But you watch season one, I'm like, all right, you know, the act, I'm surviving the acting. The actors are kind of okay. Um, I really like what they're doing. Season two, I'm like, oh, I'm actually enjoying the acting in a number of scenes now, but it goes back and forth. So I don't know if there's one, I didn't look up to see if there's one director for no. the episode or from whatever. So it's being directed by all kinds of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A, so it's a big there, range. There's, uh, if I if I looked back, I wonder if I'd see it. And then I'll also say the last three episodes um, hit me. It's interesting you watch them all three at once. I've watched each of those multiple times, um, and some I think one three times. Where I've watched very little of the others multiple times, and I I felt like they captured something. Was like, oh, they were doing a lot of interesting interleave things in season two, a lot of plot threads, a lot of things, and then. Everything click, click, click for three episodes. It was amazing. Yeah, the, the thing, yeah. uh, before we get off the bit about directing real quick, the thing that I would add is that I, I think that we see something very different as you guys uh, did a recent episode on Legion where you've got a consistent, uh, a consistent director mm. on the whole thing. I, I can't even really put the blame on the directors themselves, nor do I think it's necessarily fair to, because they're effectively brought in to each just jump in and do the magician's thing like a director would on The Flash or Supergirl or one of those kinds of um, much shinier, glossier bottle episode. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, they, had, you know, they had seven directors in 13 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's I. It's something. It's something that I. I. I really can't entirely uh, blame on the people whose hands the responsibility was really in. I blame the network, not just saying we're going to have one director on all thirteen episodes or two directors. One of them do the first half. One of them do the second half, uh, or or splitting it up something like some with some sort of continuity like that. You you don't have the actors being able to rely on building a rapport, building a relationship with the director that is uh, calling the shots, and they just kind of um, can can do what they can. No, what you're saying it. makes a ton of sense too. It's it's really like they have. Like, what do you do if you're doing a one off or a couple episodes? You don't have the same flexibility to, to push the actors through character development. You're trying to pick stuff up. You're dealing with higher level people. But I I feel like whatever they did in season two, they did it better and the actors yeah. grow have grown into the roles and um there's just funny moments like season one there's very little that's ex- very funny it's kind of there's sort of a forced stuff um there's stuff that's sexy there's stuff that's really horrifying season two there's a lot more that's like that relaxed you know, these are people who are friends who've gone through all this stuff together there's more of those moments that just feel like a natural association of people whatever's happening and th- that's that's nice to see there's some spectacularly funny stuff in season two really there is yeah. and the the, the instances <laughs> of intimacy in season to are more are more human and less yeah. okay now we're going to take our clothes off and you're going to see penny's abs oh it's on he's got great it's, abs it, it, he does he does i fantastic there's a wonderful bittersweet scene where they elliot is it can't go back to earth and so they make him a golem and his wife oh, God, in Fillory oh, wants to have a baby and then meanwhile he's he's basically picking up this guy back at break bills in his golem body and he ends up having sex simultaneously with the guy in the golem body and with his wife in his body that was pretty great. and it is it is funny and sad and sweet Kind of all at once. And kind of hot. Yeah. Like, kind of like yeah, that was hot. Actually, it's a, yeah, well, it's moment. an interdimensional t- t- menage a trois happening there. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. There, but, I want to bring up 
Plus a One golem. thing backwards, too, is I think there's an interesting thing. Uh, I want to talk about the Beast briefly because I think it ties in a little bit. The guy who played that part, holy crap, was he good. Like, of everybody. The bit where he just starts singing little bits of show tunes and oh, driving God. Julia out of her mind with his irritation was so fantastic. I, it was I, maybe the most villainous thing he did in the whole show. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Like, more than biting someone's hands off. Just his sing, like, bursting into song. Um, he was... So solid. The revelation that the beast is who he is and the fact that they don't kill him right away. Yeah. And that instead Julia takes him away. You know, you could go, have gone a bunch of different places with that. Where, where they go is that then he stick, she's stuck <laughs> with him and he's just <laughs> terrible. It's and so she doesn't want to be around him. He's so awful. And he sings. We should mention they also do a, a number from Les Mis at one that point. Is, yeah, that is, the, the one day, day more bit was not all of the actors involved were necessarily singers. They could sure. sing, but they were not <laughs> singers, as it were. But in the in the uh in the the mise en scene of it to to borrow the french term uh that glenn already uh picked uh, picked first earlier in this uh this draft of uh, of foreign language terms very highbrow um, very highbrow this episode <laughs> very highbrow sipping tea the whole time um the, the way that the way that it got pulled off was silly ridiculous high fantasy a, a moment of levity among a bunch of really pretty serious the 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 relative um safety of reality uh kind of stuff going on around them it it was it was nice it was an interesting breath of fresh air it was a it was a fun um quote-unquote irresponsible use of magic yeah uh and uh, one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite shows and even uh summer bischel's uh noting uh yeah i cut out a bunch of the verses that didn't have any anything to do with what we're doing right now Oh, so the thing I reason about the beast, though, not to not to overwrite your your sidebar there is, um, I feel like, and I think I said already, it redeemed a little bit of what I thought was a bad element in the season in uh, in the book one. But it's also they gave the beast some character. This guy, and it ties in. It become he becomes this. uh, You know, he's handing off in the relay to Julia. He explains this whole thing, which is not in the book, about a shade being detached, which I think is a becomes a really key and really smart. it's visually smart in the series as it as a series two or season two ends. But um the relationship Elliot has with that guy who I'm blanking on his name, who um the beast essentially uh, takes over his body. You have to read that backwards and you go, yeah, he has no uh, compunction. He has no soul. Um, he's doing what he needs to do, but it's also, it's an intimacy. This guy lost. It was taken from him. He went to Fillory to escape. He had to go to get away from this monster, this author who was abusing him. And this relationship with Elliot was very sweet. So sure, it's all a put on, but you know, it's, it's always when people are lying the most that they reveal their true selves. So I actually think that's a little bit of it, um, that we see that. And, and there's even a great moment where, where when Quentin recovers the author, the author's still alive. You only see him briefly. Uh, uh, you know, he's been kept alive by, uh, by the, I'm forgetting, what is his name? It's a, a, the beast's real name, I've forgotten already. Martin Chatwin. Uh, Martin Chatwin. Martin, thank you. He's been kept alive. And, and, you know, Quentin, because they added that, uh, fantastic ghost episode where they reenact what's going on in that house, which is super creepy, he gets to say to the author, like, you were, you are a terrible person. Like, yeah, you know, you've been kept alive and tortured by this guy, but you're, you caused this. Like, you made him have to flee you and become this animal. And that, I think, enriches that whole part. And then you get into, when 
when Julia then loses her shade that you see the monster she's going to become, it makes her character richer as well because yeah. we, know, we know what could happen. I, I thought it was a masterstroke casting Mr. Sheffield from The Nanny as the the – horrible pile of garbage <laughs> author that that honestly made that. the That's character great. so much creepier it was i, didn't I mean catch it was that. it was it was like a you know like uh i you know casting somebody known for a wholesome family you know whatever you know like the the guy who played the janitor on scrubs who's on that that sitcom the middle it would be like casting him as as like a, a you know a child molesting vampire or something there's one thing we haven't talked about okay. so far. Can I bring it up? It's the um, the brilliant device of having them die 39 times. It wasn't that that was that was mentioned in season one. No, it keeps coming up. Have you? Maybe I'm maybe I'm watching too closely. It's delightful. It does keep coming up. The idea is that yeah. they that that essentially uh, Jane Chatwin created a time loop to try and find a way to stop the beast, and they ran through it thirty nine times, and everybody died. And then the last time, the fortieth time of this time loop, a science fiction concept, but put in a, fi- a fantasy context in the fortieth loop. Um, they, they, they make it, they find an iteration that allows them to defeat the beast. And what we find out, I'm not sure when we find it out. That may be this season. What we find out is the reason that Julia doesn't get into break bills is because that was the variation they tried in number 40 that changed what happened. And so Julia being not allowed into break bills is totally unfair, but it was the only way that the story could lead to this point, which is also a brilliant way of saying the reason it's amazing that everything worked out exactly as you expected is because yes. this is try number 40. <laughs> And, the, and then they like look at their books, which is like the history of their lives, and the, or they and they go to the underworld, and the at the at yeah. the bellhop at the check in is like, oh, you've died thirty nine times, and they're like, yeah, 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 oh, a time loop, we don't have that very much. Our system doesn't deal with that very well. Yeah, the, the, we, we'll take care of that. That won't be a problem. Yeah. Don't worry about it. The underworld was also brilliantly portrayed. I thought too. It's much more interesting. In the, in the books, it's kind of funny, but this is actually sort of brilliant. I thought it's like an all-inclusive resort, kind of. But that's just yeah, on, well, yeah. while you're in, but insufferable. Yeah, while you're in the limbo state, so it's not great. Yeah. But it's it's sort of like everybody can hang out. You can play. You can you can go bowling or or swim or whatever you want. Technically, it's the bardo. It's the Tibetan concept of a kind of purgatory. You. Oh, sorry. All right, thanks, Glenn. <laughs> the thirty-nine times thing. Also, I you know I kind of liked the again the metaphorical kind of feeling of. Um, uh, you know, maybe you don't get into the school that you want to. Maybe that is the whole reason that your life is going to be the adventure That's that right. it's going to be, yeah. because there are countless kids who, as we speak, are uh, applying to getting rejected from uh, different schools as undergrads, and they are just sure that it's going to be the end of their lives. But um, in the case of the magicians, it could mean that you end up helping save all of reality. Exactly right. Now, I do think that in Purgatory or uh, or the Underworld, we there is a hint of what. Um, is is maybe a storyline down the road here which is yeah. the lady is and, and like the gods disappeared they they were hanging out there the gods of the underworld and then they just went away a while ago and they haven't been seen since and we do see our lady of the underground persephone we do see her briefly she does come back to save her son from being killed but i think it's an open question especially since the season ends with with the death of um of Ember at the hands of Quentin leading to yeah. the gods sending a plumber to turn off all of the magic in all of the realms that there's this open question, which is what's the deal with the gods? What's going on with them? Because why did, why did they go to the trouble of saying the gods of the underworld just vanished a while ago and nobody's seen them. And Renard also complains that he hasn't been able to find her. And, 
and that's the, obviously a thread. There's some book stuff that that I that I I, I don't even want to discuss in this part of it because it touches stuff that they might do in the show later on. But the, uh, that I wanted to mention to you guys after we we wrap the the proper <sighs> uh, show itself. That just I you know it, it makes me wonder specifically along these lines. It seems like season three is definitely headed in the direction of. So where are the gods and why have they been well, gone? I, I think there's maybe three more seasons they can get out of this if they have the maybe. I mean, there's at least one more, but there's still there's so much there's so much good. I want to say not plot, but there's so much good that could be mined. They they killed Alice and then unkilled Alice right. very quickly. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they haven't really gotten rid of any of their main cast yet. Um you know, I did, did they kill the two Pickwick uh, brothers from Elliot's uh, inner circle? The the one who talks to the sloth, and the 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 other guy. Um, I, I mean, don't they, know. they promised a bunch of you know oh. big deaths, and I guess big deaths were the gods um, that that died in that last episode. Yeah. So I there are a lot of people yet to kill. Well, it's also the reason I like the iteration thing is it was it's a good nod to the like why are things different from the books? It's like, oh, we tried a bunch of different stuff this time. And even when the librarian somewhere in season <laughs> Yeah, the one, books were try number four. Yeah, the, when the librarian at some point says says, you know, Penny, Alice, Quentin, Janet, and she says, Margo. She said, this time. And then they walk yeah. off and you're like, that's cute. That's cute. But it does help. It, it shows that this is kind of this, um, they're in uncharted territory. Even the fact that Ember and Umber's roles are reversed by name from the book and the exile and, and what have you. Um, there's just, uh, there's, there's a, I mean, it depends too. They may pick up. There's, I mean, in the books, you come to it, you know, not without spoiling the very ending, but you come to kind of an, uh, an end that's like an ultimate end and rebirth and so forth. So it's hard to go past that, but it's just a question of how far they want to get into it. Um, can I tell you the moment that made me gasp and, and sob? Sure. I, I briefly, it was please just make us cry. They're in the underworld. They've gone to Miss Persephone's house, right? And then Julia makes the connection. She's like, Oh, this is our lady of the underworld. Of course. That's the jerk, right? Who, whatever. They go up in the bedroom and, uh, she's, um, uh, Julia's going into the closet to find somebody and she finds Alice. Yeah. And as a shade, I just sobbed. I wasn't expecting <laughs> it because they're expecting, you know, Julia's shade to come out. We've already seen her in the vision and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, of course Alice is there. And they had picked such, I mean, they picked such adorable little waifish, girls who are so perfect and they though they did a great job with those actresses and the interaction was just so ah but that, that just it killed me maybe it's a parental thing too but i just died i also have to say that i really did believe um that they were killing alice yeah i i just thought that that was that was what happens in the books is they kill alice and that she's not going to be on the show anymore um i've discovered in my research for this episode that uh, alice coming back to life is something that also happens in book three that i haven't read so uh i guess they did take that from the book but um but i i was surprised and so i was really shocked too to see alice's shade in the underworld yeah. and although i was not surprised when after we see her bring alice's shade out in the into the elevator to go back to the real world i yeah. um when they when they got to the point where she was going to she was being asked to spare renard i thought oh well I can see where this is going, that that's going to be the gift that she's given is she gets her shade back. 
which is something, although it doesn't really make up for all the horrible things that Renard did. Right. And then the next scene, Julia is sobbing if, inc- it felt uncontrollably way too tidy. because yeah. she's had her shade given back to her. And now she feels everything. And her reward is feeling horrible about all the trauma that she's experienced, which is what the, what the beast told her. He said, you don't have to feel all this guilt or the, or the horror of what you've gone through. And she's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, so he was talk, telling the truth. You shoot. talk about those last three episodes. There were several moments where I turned to Lauren while we were watching him and I said, okay, that plot line just linked up with this plot line. It is amazing. <laughs> You can see the planning in the last couple of hours. They click, like, click, click, they click, knock click. them all down. You can see all the note cards right? fluttering from right. the all, wall. All into the little the bits air. of string. This is where they connect around this note card right here. But one of the things that I really, I really appreciated was at the end there, as they wrap up all those things, that. It, it, it's very frustrating that Julia doesn't get to kill Renard, who was just awful, right? And they, they, they credit to them for creating such a villainous character. But she gets talked out of it by the, by the, the goddess she was worshiping all that time ago. She gets her shade back. She's still miserable the, and awful. The goddess who was stolen by Hades and forced right. to marry him. But here is the thing. They apparently work things out. The whole point of that scene is not just to get Julia there and not just to resolve Renard, but it's also then when we see the actual result of a human killing a god, which happens when Quentin kills Ember and all the magic gets shut off, it backtracks to there and you see why it had to be that way, why Our Lady of the Underground was giving her good advice because what what terrible thing would have happened if she had actually killed Renard there uh so it all interlinks right it all interconnects but the, the net result is yeah that Julia is a is a mess again and and her friend uh what Katie is also a mess like she's she's back on back on heroin or whatever and like yeah, it's magical a, magical heroin cure yeah. or temporary cures right that was an interesting idea yeah too. Um, we didn't talk about Marina, who is really not in the original books. And I just thought, just worth a mention, because A, I thought the actress, I, that was an actress who was given, okay, here's what you're going to do, and you're just allowed to do it. And I think across all the episodes she was in, she pulled off that performance well, yeah. very, very well. But but B, like a really great addition, like of the things you could add to the show, uh, like the head librarian, like I feel is a deus ex machina. It's not – she doesn't work very well for me because of the acting choices, the directing choices, and I don't feel she's pushed things along to exactly you – know, just kind of pushing the plot along. But 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 Marina, I think, is fantastic addition. I have to feel like that's a veneer. It feels it feels like there there's got to be something more that they're going to do with her. There there will there has to be yeah. There's got to be. We yeah. see what's coming right. The twenty blank pages are coming. They've told us that that something's about to happen. That was the last thing I wanted to, I wanted to get to, which is again for a show that's a fantasy show, it does a time travel thing. And it does a couple other science fictional tropes and in amusing ways. And and the empty books. So in the library, everybody's story of their lives is there. But it turns out that everybody who's involved in this show, the last 20 pages of their book is is blank. And at the time, it's assumed that this is because Ember is going to do – he's bored and he's going to do something terrible and wipe everybody out. So they stop him and they kill him and magic gets turned off, which makes you think, wait a second. Is the reason all the books are blank at the end because magic gets turned off so things can't be put in the books anymore? anymore did they cause the future that they were trying to avoid by doing this it's a great little kind of magical temporal paradox yeah and i love undoing, it undoing part of their deus ex machina that they set up which is you can always go look up what's going to happen two years right. from now right oh that's but, good. and they get the sad bittersweet thing where the where the which is also a season three plot line undoubtedly where there's the girl who works in the library who goes with penny and she reads her own book and discovers that she never gets back out of the of the the poison room she's going to die there and so she tells him to go and he still pays but a price anyway. but that's so it's so sad um but at the 
same time, her dad also is an incredibly powerful person who put her in the library to be safe, and then she dies. So I think that's going to come up in season three as well, right? He could be be a god. He could be. The head librarian could be. Uh, could be a god or a demigod. I, yeah. I, I like that there, there are roles like that, roles like Marina, roles like the one played by Marley Matlin that in yes, most shows, Matlin. the default is we're going to cast a guy. And there is this cornucopia of different women characters that do different things and are not just one note. And, and I love, I love the danger of Marley Matlin playing a character that isn't just deaf attorney or deaf district attorney or, you know, deaf, uh, you know, a uh, school teacher or something like that. She, she is playing this character and that character just is deaf. Um, the, the, the thing that I love in particular is that I don't know that I've ever seen Marley Matlin get to play a character that is this undeterminable in terms of whether they have some sort of sinister intent or whether uh-huh. they are just a troublemaker that other people dislike for their troublemaking. And, and I like that 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 I can say that one of my favorite new characters in season two of the magicians is one played by Marley Matlin, who I don't know if she's a bad guy or not. Yep. No, I think right. Moral ambiguity is something. I mean, moral <laughs> ambiguity is the whole point of the books. I would say relative to, or not even moral ambiguity, but like the, the extent to which you can make a more, a case for a moral universe. Right. And the books are kind of about that. The series explores it really well. And there's this issue of like, if you're in another world that has entirely different rules, does morality still apply? And the beast is like, nope, I got the power, so I run. Ember and Umber have different kind of personalities in the books versus the TV series. But, you know, Ember's like, I made the thing. I can destroy it. It's my thing. It's my play tape. You know, yeah. He literally made a square flat world and he can sweep the pieces off it like a board. Exactly. One thing I wanted to mention before we go, um, which is the weird parallel between The Magicians and The Expanse. They both aired back to back on Sci-Fi this year. Yeah. They're both in their second season. They're both adapting books that I had read before. And then they both made really them into good. TV series. <laughs> they were both way better in their second season, I would say, than their first season. Oh. Um, and then the other thing I'll th- toss in there, which is cool, is um, they both have a, an actor in their ensemble who is of Indian origin, which, you know, is not a uh, thing that happens commonly in American television. Well, and The Magicians has like five of them. And, and they're, they're just there. And it's not like... It's just it's just part of the story, and I love that about it too. That it's just there are lots of strong women in both in both uh, doing lots of different jobs, including jobs that you usually see men doing. Lots of cool things about both of these shows that that they brought to Wednesday nights on the Sci Fi Channel. I, I would I would I would I would only fight you on your adjective of strong. Because I know I think that the, the I, yeah, I mean the term the term has been abused. It has been it has been ruined. A, but like Marco, you know, let's bolt things into a Mar- template. Marco is but, fully but there's, formed. There's a level of complexity. Yeah. Oh my god. Fully for, fully formed and complex they're, they're right. so they're real and placed in situations yeah, where they don't normally get placed which i think is one of the reasons why i i used the word strong is that is that there are parts that have more upper hand on other characters and those are almost always men and they're not in this show and that's great because they shouldn't be i, I also like these drop in things where there's there's like a a, a casual disinterest in uh like normative convention that's presented without 
the same kind of commentary, right? So when they're in the middle of a sword battle, a literal one, uh, Elliot and the King of Loria, like, yep, they're both gay. Huh. Maybe we can figure this out. Let's and just like, get Wait married. Wait a minute. Why did this never come up before? You know what? We should have talked about <laughs> this and maybe, about maybe this. banged a couple times. Every king can have both a husband and a wife. And so let's get married. I'm like, that was a great solution. It was really lovely. That guy is a pretty smoldering fella, too. Good gravy. Yeah. I love their <laughs> scenes together. I like, I love their, uh, the, the duel kind of thing. Also, let's talk about just momentarily. I'll just mention the boldness of the show to do an episode called the Cock Barons because all the the city that that king's people are from that look like penises. Well, and it makes sense too. Like I think the construction <laughs> of the world is so ridiculous because I mean, when you then you understand. Well, Ember is really the one who made all the chaos. Yeah. Thus, of course, there are cock barons. Of course, he and it, it gives you that nice double double of uh the this is a fantasy world created by an author and so it's his whims and it turns out well no it's actually a fantasy world created by this god detailed by the author but it's still an author's yeah. whimsy that is behind it it's just the <laughs> god's whimsy instead of the author's whimsy well and 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 you and you have things like you know something that you see in in uh you know comics like saga that have a cat that just says the word lying when somebody's lying <laughs> you have a rabbit that <laughs> yes. just barks out the word pregnant that, that somebody beautiful. is pregnant you have uh you have a dragon and i I should mention, I, I looked up who voiced the dragon and Doctor Who connection, because we can't do an episode of The Incomparable nope. and not mention Doctor no. Who, the actress who plays Osgood on Doctor Who. Oh, it's uh, the dragon. Oh, dragon. She Effing millennials, she says, is the queen of the worms. Amazing. Uh, th- there, there's, a, there's a reference to Nate Silver, a wizard on my world. Yes. yes. Um, Trogdor from, uh, from, uh, from Homestar Runner, of all things. I, I, like, I, I love that, that, that they're not just like making Avengers references or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And also that it's not stuffy, because I think one of my complaints about a lot of fantasy is that it takes itself so seriously. And yeah. this show does not do that. It is funny yeah, and there, fun. There's not a single joke in this show that is like, oh, so I guess you're chaotic neutral, huh? What does that mean? Nothing. When Nothing. they capture the white lady and she's like, he's, they're like haggling over things and she's like, you get one each or, you know, you can piss off or whatever she says. And, she, and they're like, okay, okay, we forgot. Like, you know, she's a magic creature, but she's not, you know, cute and twee. She's like pissed off because you shot an arrow out into her. Well, the quick, the yep. quick visit to Cuba. I loved Cuba. It was so perfect and orderly and horrible. Is Umber's terrible vision of what a uh, world should be. Yeah. And so incredibly brightly fluorescent lit. It was <laughs> oh, just the matrix. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was everything yes. that is my nightmares. Yep. Um, the architect, the, the couple last little bits, uh, the, the thing ripped directly from the books that I liked the most in season two, just as a detail was the demon tattoos. Um, and again, yeah, I fantasy, uh, you know, whimsy and that kind of thing. I love that it was kind of the, Oh God. Oh, we're going to have tattoos in our backs and oh, we're going to have our entire backs tattooed. That's going to hurt. And that being a big pain in the ass. Um, I, the, the thing that I found interesting, another thing I mentioned to Jason, uh, was that yes, they bleep the F word very, uh, consistently or rather they duck it rather than bleep it. Um, but they, the, it, it's funny, the things that they do leave in, like the C word. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the F word is and, not, they, they don't do a very good job of it. I think purposefully, yeah. it's really just like a hand wave of the broadcast. Cause I think sci-fi channel sells their, their channel as a TV 14. And so they have like advertisers that they might lose if they went TVMA. So they, they do this obligatory ducking. I will say I really enjoyed watching the iTunes versions of the last three episodes. <laughs> Because they looked great, and they had all the f words in them, and it was delightful. So, I guess I'm ruined now. <laughs> You're ruined. Unbleep. You yeah. can't unbleep it after you it's, bleep it. Yeah. Nope. 
I'm the the on the world building side of things. Uh, I you know the the last thing that I have among my r- ransom note looking series of of bulleted notes here. Um, the, on the world building side of things, one of the things that I, I enjoyed most about season two was not didactically beating you over the head with it or triple underlining it, but making it pretty clear that as you know, Ember and Umber created this world, and um, and Umber created Cuba, uh, yep. and <laughs> there are other worlds to be created. Yeah. There, they are like you know, they they exist across quantum space uh, from one another, and it's something that would that that for me makes the fountain emphasis from season one yes. work better in that mm-hmm. these are all cro- they're all connected through these interdimensional uh, sorts of gateways and. I love, love, love when people who are incredible pedants about is this sci-fi or is this fantasy are tied in knots. And this is one of those kinds of things uh-huh. that, that I am sure ties those people in knots of, no, 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 that's too sci-fi. That is not fantasy enough. This is not fantasy. I don't know what this is. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? I know it's something that I like, so screw off. Exactly right. And they don't try to explain it. Nobody tries to explain why there is a wellspring of magic. There just is one. Why the gods can turn it off and why the Netherlands exist. The Netherlands are just a thing and people discovered them. That's right. It's great. I, I do love the fact that the last bit there, the plumber, like instead of in the books, it's this very big description and there's a war that happens between books two and three that we're going to see, I think, in season three. And it's only implied in the books and like an interstices, interstices. Um, but I just love the fact there's a guy in a plumber uniform. He, he's in, practically infinitely powerful and he opens an invisible door in the world <laughs> and there's a little stream waterfall and he turns it off. And I thought that is yep. – a brilliant use of minimal CGI, a very good convention, and it demonstrates the power. It's like, nice. Yep. Very good. And we'll lead into season three and find out what happens next, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so, something that I mentioned to you with the conclusion of season one, which was, well, wait a minute. Are they really doing all this? And then we saw the premiere of season two and both of us are like, oh, are they just are they just undoing it and making all the X-Men feel better again? Um, you know, is, is that really what they're doing? We have all of all of our main cast still alive at yes. the end of season two. Yeah, yeah but it, right. But it doesn't feel like a cheat. It doesn't feel like a cheat because I've become I, – I, I think my urge to see people killed off comes from it, it being customary to fridge people. And whether they're a girl, whether they're a guy, uh, people just have to get fridged is the way that a lot of people think that narrative has to work. But – this is this is this is again try number forty, um, and and I like that <laughs> I like I like that I like that they are playing with the notion of uh, killing your main characters is how you develop other main characters is by motivating them through death. Instead, we're motivating them by a crushing amount of PTSD, and at the end of season two, taking away all their magic. Exactly right, and they have to figure out where to go from here. I I also like the fact that they take away the magic and then have Julia kind of like have a little spark that she has because that that too is not what they did at the end of season one where they sort of, oh, I guess they are probably dead. Goodbye. We'll see you. And this time they're like, <laughs> shocking end, but wait. And then they cut it. And that's like, that's way more interesting to me because then it's like, yeah. ah, so they, the, we, the door is open slightly about where this show goes next because you know the magicians season three is not going to be no more magic. The magicians all get jobs in accounting right that's not going to be what happens so why not just own up to it and say aha there is a mystery here about magic and it's not all gone 
to be continued, much better way to end it, I think. Yeah. And at the end of season one, you know, one of the complaints that was all over a bunch of recap reviews and one that I had concerns about being what the implication was, was that the two victims of sexual assault were suddenly teamed up as bad guys. Right. They were the bad guys right. set out to fight the good X-Men. And the progression of season two helped dispel all of that for me. Um, but I like that the way that our main cast is set up at the end of season two yeah, there's tension between Katie and Julia, um, but there aren't there aren't stark divisions across the entire group. And it seems like they're going into season three uh, in in relatively good shape to be one uh, concentrated unit once they get over some some stuff that is not, you know, based on the history of the show so far, not going to prevent all the good guys from getting together and being good guys together. But it seems like it is setting them up with an exponential level of multiple threats, the fairies, the whatever's going on with the gods, um, all of that weighing down on them where it is the the impossible weight that they don't know how to lift. All right, we got to wrap it here, but thanks to everybody for listening, and I would like to thank my guests for talking about the magicians. It's so exciting. Glenn Fleischman, thank you. Thanks. It's so fun to have a show that I enjoy so much, and I'm looking so much to the third season yeah. of. I'm glad it's coming back, too. I was worried a little bit, but it is coming back. Moises Chuyan, thank you so much. I second the thoughts of the senator from the good state of magic. <laughs> All right. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will see you next time. Next time.